like to welcome everyone back to the Duck Pond Wall. I'm your host, Monica Hall, the Alumni Director at Emory & Henry, and it's my honor every week to get to sit down with someone from Emory & Henry who has graduated and is out there doing great things in the world. And I am super excited about today's conversation because this is almost like a quick class as much as it is a profile this time because we're going to learn a really fascinating and difficult story today. Amy Limco Jaramillo, Emory & Henry class of 2020 is my guest and how are you doing? Well, Monica, we talked about that I've just come back from a trip, so I'm a bit under the weather and I wanted to mention that specifically because I think when you see people accomplish things, you might not think that they have those obstacles and they do and also to say that sometimes you don't show up as your best self to every circumstance and you have to kind of figure out that balance between sometimes you shouldn't show up, you should rest, right. and sometimes you, you show up and you realize that I don't have to be my best self to contribute something talking about the subject of the book. I have to assume that everybody who took part in those events didn't feel like they're myself every day that they showed up. I think I said I wanted to to steal that line that you used in the email back to me that said we just can't wait on perfection, which I thought was pretty awesome. Let's talk about the, what your book is about. It is called Wading In, Desegregation on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is a story I never knew before. Tell us about Dr. Gilbert Mason. Dr. Gilbert Mason was born in Jackson, Mississippi in the Depression, and then he had to leave the state to do his doctorate program. But Mississippi was hungry for black doctors to send the black patients, so they would pay a little bit of the college fund if he agreed to return and work for four years. And he ended up down in Mississippi uh, in Biloxi. And Biloxi was very tricky. What had happened is that the natural coastline as residential development happened had um, caused erosion. So the natural coastline was sort of being eroded away. And they ended up, the army went in and filled it in. So the beach that's there now is a maintained, technically man-made beach. And because that required federal funding, it became public property. But it wasn't treated that way. And Dr. Gilbert Mason knew the law well enough. He um, began uh, literally by himself a a movement of resistance, of peaceful resistance that... um, culminated in the beaches being desegregated. And then he also attacked the, the desegregation of the schools. Biloxi, I grew up there. I never knew this. Biloxi was the first elementary school in Mississippi to desegregate. In the lawsuit, other schools were also included, such as Jackson. But just because of the date that the, the doors opened, Biloxi was the first one that you know, opened and thankfully it was a, a really peaceful desegregation. And Dr. But, and Dr. Um, Mason was part of that too. Yes. Yeah. He and his son, ironically, his son was um, the primary plaintiff on the case to, or the attempt to open the schools. But when they did desegregate, they, they did a slow opening. So it was like kindergarten and 12th grade. And so his son, ironically, was not a part of that first class that was able to lead that desegregation. So basically, um, Dr. Mason said, it's crazy that you're not going to let black people swim and and use this beach because the Army Corps of Engineers has built it and used taxpayer money. 
So you can't keep saying that this this is privately owned property that uh, that is that belongs to the people who have houses here. Yeah. And so he started a movement. Did he call it a wade in as opposed to a sit in? It was a wade in. Did he call it that? I don't know that he coined that phrase, but yes, it was called that at the time because um, it was a part of. Um, the sit-ins were sort of happening right simultaneously as that event happened. Yeah, and they actually did fire the NAACP to uh, organize other weigh-ins across the country. So Biloxi oh. was, yeah, one of the first ones. Oh, that is wicked cool. So there in Biloxi, he did a couple of. He really just went swimming one day and was told he couldn't be there, and so that kind of led to him doing other things with more intention. Yes. Yeah, the first time he went with a group of friends to go swimming, the police came and said, you can't be here. He said, I absolutely can. Show me. He was always just very, that's fine. Just show me what the law is. Right. And they say, well, well, we can figure it out. We can show you (laughs) tomorrow. They couldn't. (laughs) So the next time he tried to get a group of people together to go with him, but nobody did come to that. And so it was him all by himself the second time. And that time he was um, arrested. And actually being arrested was really important because there would be no challenge to the law or the legality of it if the law enforcement doesn't get involved. And so uh. then when he was he was arrested, that kind of sparked like the outrage enough that the next time he was able to gather several hundred people to go down to the beach together. That was the event that had um, that became known as Bloody Sunday, that there was violence. Um, and an attack on the black people who had gone to the beach and there were arrests. And then the the final weight in was essentially because when the Bloody Sunday happened, that triggered the it going into the court, it, having them all decide. But, you know, that machine moves very slowly. Mm-hmm. So enough years were going by that he said, hey, we're actually not going to wait for a decision. So the fourth and final weight in was to say, we're just not going to wait indefinitely. You can't put us off indefinitely. You, well, I hadn't thought of that, that if, I mean, if they arrested him and there really wasn't a law that said he could be be there, that does, in fact, start things moving, making it clear that it's not a law and that here's what we need to do to make it more honest. Yeah. And I mean, it, it creates that trail of paperwork to even prove that it's happening, because if you went to the courts and said, hey, we're being prevented from going to the beach and you don't have a record of somebody being taken off the beach, then there could be a lot of he said, she said, no, that's not how it happened, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's an important part. The thing that I think really struck me was reading a little bit about the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission. Uh, Tell us what that is or was. It's so wild. And I mean, like, thank God for them in this one way because they they, um, created such a wealth of information uh, documented yes they yeah. documented so much and and they wanted of course to destroy it in the end but thankfully they were also prevented from that and so uh, <laughs> they the it's hard to know where to start isn't it I, it, it is because also i'm trying to think like what was the true motivation for starting it basically it was a taxpayer funded group that the governor set up ostentatiously to promote like tourism and a, and a different attitude toward the South, because of course the South was having this reputation, just an ugly reputation in, in regards to those things. 
And so they were meant to say, no, 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 we're all fine. We're all friends. The way that this is set up is lovely and you have nothing to worry about. Bring your family on vacation and you'll see for yourself. They did do activities like that. They had advertisements and things, but a huge part of what they were doing was just spying on people and finding ways to um, intimidate them into not challenging the system to the point where they would send you know, people to uh, not eavesdrop, but to record things that were going on. They took mail out of people's mailboxes. And they were pretty successful in the book. You would see that what was really important about the people who were able to accomplish the desegregation of the beach and the school was that, that they were in position to be more financially. Un- it was more difficult to intimidate them financially. Mm. So you will see a lot of people who were like doctors. They weren't dependent on other people to provide their jobs. So that's very important mm-hmm. because if you challenge the system and you could be fired, you would be fired. Right. But doctors um, doctors had a little bit more a little bit more autonomy. A little bit more. Sometimes if you couldn't go after the doctor, you went after their patient oh, and wow. then eventually business would, would dry up and they were, you know, driven out of the state. That wow. happened to other doctors. And then the Air Force Base in Biloxi was a big part of why it was so successful, because now you're not a state resident, you're a federal resident, and you're in the military. And so there was a different, at, so when the um, petition to desegregate the schools was happening, a lot of the parents who were on the petition were um, through the Air Force Base. They were military, a trickier circumstance. Well, it was it was horrifying and to realize, you know, so here's this, this government you know, state-funded organization that was intimidating people who were trying to change the system, who were trying to make things more, you know, desegregated and and fair, intimidating them and um, sort of doing backdoor things to challenge their, their businesses and that kind of thing, making sure they got fired, all this stuff. But they didn't get rid of that doggone thing until 1977. Yeah, they didn't get rid of it, but it did start to lose its it wasn't being used as a resource. So early in the book, you would see that the governor or uh, the mayor of the town was really hand-in-hand working with the Sovereignty Commission. And then later when the leadership changed, the Sovereignty Commission would send people in to say, hey, can we help out? And they would just say, no, no. (laughs) We're (laughs) We're good. You have done, yeah, thank you. We'll let you know. And then they would just, never get in contact and so that it sort of petered out in that way okay that's good what what hurts my heart the most is that uh, because it's taxpayer funded the black people were also paying taxes to this group that is actively oppressing them that that is so painful to me that yeah that you're exactly right well i want to remind everyone we're speaking today with amy limco and I want to make sure that people know all of your names because the folks who were in school with you know you as Haramio. Um, uh, but Limco is the name that you write under. And so we want to make sure people can find your book. The name of the book is Wading in Desegregation on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. I was teasing you about the fact that you haven't been out of school very long and you've already got this book under your belt. What made you want to, to write about this particular topic? Um, well, I think this is so good for anybody who is in school right now. So what happened was we moved in the, I graduated during the pandemic. We moved back to Oregon. Um, in part, we chose the location to be close to grad school. That was my intention was to go to grad school. Three is history and creative writing. And I wanted to be in the creative writing grad school program. I applied and 
wasn't accepted. And then I said, oh my gosh, well, I can't spend a whole year just waiting for this. I have to do something to essentially build my resume. And my intention was actually to write a children's book because I thought I want to do something that is the sort of the quickest and easiest thing to do. I don't have to be creative. I just have, I'm going to do a nonfiction project. I'm going to think about what history do I kind of know, but is underserved. And even though I grew up in Biloxi to the point where I should have been taking civil rights history and local state history, those are requirements. I don't remember that we talked about that. So certainly even if it was covered, it wasn't covered in, in, in depth and effective way. Right. It wasn't until I was an adult that I found out about the wait-ins and that they started to be like, now there is a plaque on the beach. There are different things that happen now that I don't think were happening when I was younger. So I thought this is something that not only should be talked about more, but probably should be talked about to a younger audience. So I still would love for there to be a children's book. Well, what happened was I wrote the children's book. I submitted it to the University Press of Mississippi. And thank goodness that they were, that they were so gracious about it. And they said, oh, well, we don't publish children's books. But if you want to write a full link feature, we might be interested. And I wasn't going to let the sun set on the opportunity. Heck so no. I, I asked my husband, can I just buckle down to you? Can I essentially not contribute to the family for a few months and just really buckle down and do this. And that's what happened. I just then dove into the research and making it into uh, the book that it is. And I really, I wanted to put it in context as well. The book begins with the history of slaves coming to Biloxi. And so I wanted the context of how that the community had even ended up there in the first place mm-hmm. and how then Gilbert Mason came into it. So I tried to put it in context. There's not that much previous literature and research out there. It really is a remarkable story. I'm excited to dive into your book to learn more about it. What, what surprised you the most? That's an interesting question. I mean, I didn't really know about the State Sovereignty Commission uh, until I started doing the research. And in general, like I didn't understand the way that the argument by the people who were in that camp, they really lumped a lot of things together. So they really lumped the fight for civil rights in with um, communism. They really lumped it in with Judaism. Those were sort of like three main things. And I remember watching a movie, oh, is it The Long Walk Home with Sissy Spacek? And I've seen it many times before. So I got the bigger picture, but there is a conversation in that movie where they're, they make a just one joke that sort of lumps those things together. And I was like, oh, now I understand it. Oh, you that's funny. To, yeah, you have to have a certain consciousness about things to catch them when they come by you. It's weird and interesting to think about the psychology that people have. I guess that's what I'm so grateful about the Sovereignty Commission records is because you often only get one side of a story and to be able to look and see that this is the way that the one side is portraying it and how they rationalize it. And then you also are getting the lens that the other side is looking through. That helps you to sort of read between the lines in a in a better way. The other thing that I don't know if it's surprising, but it took me a little bit to consciously think about what is still missing from the story and to realize that it's women's voices. And I don't even know if there's any way to recover that because 
women were involved, women were arrested, they were never interviewed for the newspapers. Hmm. And on the flip side, something I haven't even been able to get an answer for is to what degree were women involved with the Sovereignty Commission? They may not have had any of the roles of being the agents and the spies, but they certainly must have worked in the building and been doing all the filing and duplicating that happened because they really loved to duplicate their records. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were spending, they were taking a lot of taxpayers' money to just um, copy things, copy newspaper records, make six duplications, file them into different places. Where, I did, think that, where did you <laughs> have to go to, to like access all those records? Oh, if they're all digitized online. If you just would Google, you know, Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, you'll go to the site and then you can look them up by like the last name if you know the person or sometimes I think the town. Yeah, there's different ways that you can uh, search them. How many hours did you spend pouring through all that? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. A lot. A lot. Because my sources, even in the book, the sort you, there's not a complete list of sources because you just sort of say, like, newspapers is one that you just cite to link it statement that I looked at this newspaper. But if you knew how many articles that I read from that newspaper, yeah, it doesn't maybe even make sense time-wise. You make a really interesting point about the women's voices. That is true of so many stories because they weren't considered and they weren't, you know, taken seriously or consulted. If they were consulted, they weren't their their thoughts weren't written down all the time. I just read a book um, by Patricia Hudson called Traces, and it's a story about the Daniel Boone family from the perspective of his wife and daughters. And it's fascinating to think about it. And she said a lot of people kept saying, oh, this is dumb because that's just they just would have gone along. They wouldn't have thought about anything. Even now, that's what she had to deal with. with People said, oh, they just they just wouldn't have thought about any of those things. How do we go back and find those voices? Yeah, sometimes, sadly, I think they just lost. I mean, even in this case, I would say that although I had access to newspaper interviews and I had access to Gilbert Mason's book and I had access to the voices and the version of the story as told from the Black perspective, it still was less than the records that were kept by the State Sovereignty Commission. Tell us what is next for you, Amy. What you going to do next? <laughs> oh, work on more books. <laughs> I am. I have a project right now that is a local where I'm at in Oregon, Monmouth, Oregon. It's here is Western Oregon University. They have a really prestigious um, ASL program, and there is maybe. I mean, I can't say that this is a fact. Maybe I'm just not conscious, but there is of uh, there is a, a deaf community here and like a vibrant deaf community. So after I wrote the book circumstances happened where I was invited to join the historic commission here and on like the first day I was like well let me start looking at the local records here that's something I regret as somebody who's interested in history is I've lived many places and I maybe focused on like international history or other things that are interesting instead of taking advantage of what was at my fingertips so I started to look into local records and right away it popped up that there was um, from the very first record of Monmouth as its own independent town, that there was uh, a deaf man who was here as shoemaker. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. Again, that's not a history that gets told enough. No. Um, in particular to this community where there already is an interest in deaf culture and deaf history, like, that's especially resonant. And so I've been researching him and his wife, and I'm hoping to get that book done sooner rather than later. 
but actually I also, my goal ultimately is to write fiction. So in some ways doing these nonfiction projects is like a means of building my resume and trying to get into the fiction market as well. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It, it seems like this is a wonderful blend of your history and, and English loves and majors. And so it seems I kind of enjoy the, the stories that you're finding and digging out for us. Yes, it's very enjoyable. I just couldn't be completely satisfied. So nonfiction is a bit like doing a, a giant puzzle with a thousand pieces. Yeah. And I, I enjoy that, but it's very different than doing a creative thing, which is much more like artistic, you know, and free flow. And so I, I couldn't be entirely satisfied if I only did nonfiction. So do you have, do you have a notion in mind of what the, your nonfiction book is going to be? Yeah. So I did self-publish some nonfiction before. They are not professionally edited and it really is important. I think when people say that it's not important and yes, it is. <laughs> it gets in the way of your reader connecting. So I don't really like promote those books. I actually started on the nonfiction that I'm working on. It's still historical, so I still get to do the research part of it and put that aspect into it, the educational aspect into it. I started on it in Jolie Lewis's short story class when I was at Emory and Henry. Sweet. But you're not you're not gonna give us a hint about what it's about. Oh I can. It's a historical sort of sweet romance. I guess. And I, um, I set myself a challenge that I would never set again, which is that particularly the romance genre where oftentimes, you know, there's these obstacles of misunderstanding or like enemies, you know, you come from Romeo and Juliet, there's an obstacle between you. Um, oftentimes, if it has a happy ending, it's resolved in part because one person is fantastically rich and just throw money at whatever the obstacle is. You mean like every Hallmark movie? Yes. Okay. <laughs> like every Hallmark movie. Got it. Person. Yes, it's fantastically rich and they solve the problems that way and the only other problem is the mis- the miscommunication between the two main characters. Right. So really, that probably could have been very easily resolved by a very simple direct conversation. So I thought, I'm going to write a story where the really the only obstacle is the internal decision to partake in it, or maybe like just self-doubt. So it's a bit of like an ugly duckling story, but an ugly duckling story where the pers- they never have to have a, a transformation. They really just have to say, well, yeah, I'm valuable in this spirit. And yes, I would like to partake in this relationship. I'm worthy of this relationship. And yes, I I want to be in it. Wow. There's no no necessity to be in it. She doesn't need to marry a man. Just really want to. Well, fear that, yeah, just really want to, so... Well, I like I like the um, the notion of of a woman who is self possessed and knows what she wants. So good for you. Kind of sounds a little bit like you, Amy. <laughs> yeah. What from Emory and Henry sort of has an influence still on what you're doing and thinking about doing? Yeah, sure, a hundred percent. I would not have the mindset and have written that book if it wasn't for Emory and Henry. It was also valuable to me, and my benefit was that I did not go to college right out of high school. I tried a couple classes, but I sort of had fallen off and I went and like I what I would say is played house I just had a job in order to pay my bills and in part at that point I already knew that I wanted to be a writer and I thought that it wouldn't be necessary it's not necessary for everybody to go down the same path Um, but it certainly makes it easier if you access a team of people who um, have the skill set to help you and who have other connections to help you 
So by the time that I went back to college, it was so intentional. I knew so much about what I wanted and I understood the value of it. And so every single class that I took, I was taking, the, I was being very intentional about what classes I took and I knew how that they would feed into my ultimate goal. And that was true even when I started at community college. But when I got to Emory and Henry, I don't know, is it Emory and Henry in particular is magical and will always have these kind of professors or is it the professors that I had? But the <laughs> professors that I had were, they gave me back tenfold what I was getting. They saw that I was serious and they were invested in that. And they were not just like, oh yeah, sure, you could kind of do what they want. They were like, oh no, you can absolutely do it. And how you need to and you need to take it seriously like any other job. And I could ask them a question, well, how, you know, what do I do? Is is grad school the right move? Or what if I don't do that, what are the other choices? So I was able to access all the information they had about like logistically how to make that happen. As they say, like, you know, considering the source that there might be other times that some people might have been like, oh, sure, you're talented. I do that for myself all the time. I, I thought that I had this. But it really is helpful when somebody who you really respect and you see who are deeply invested and interested in literature themselves look at what you're doing and go, oh, yeah, that's it. You know, that's, that can be part of the ultimate, you know, the ultimate art. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's reassuring. It's reaffirming. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you talk about having a team of people who are who know their stuff, but they're also invested in you that, that can help you make that decision. I also like that you said it was magical. That's kind of cute. I'm, I might <laughs> may have to steal that for the admissions office. Amy Limco Harmio, I want to thank you so much for being our guest today on the Duck Pond Wall and telling us about this book you've written. Thank you. And I hope if we talk again, I'll be 100% healthy and much more articulate. Listen, if this is you inarticulate, then I, I can't keep up with you. I need you to always be a little bit under the weather when I have a conversation with you. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening today to the Duck Pond Wall. Please stay tuned to WEHCFM 90.7, WISEFM 90.5 and WISE, because this is the voice of Southwest Virginia. Southwest Virginia.